you'll turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of John, first chapter. We've been going through these last uh, few Sundays in the prologue of John's book, John's gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that he is presenting him as God Almighty, and that this, that this creator God of the universe has come into his creation. And though it all belonged to him, he was not known, he was rejected, but there are some that receive him, and he gave power to them to become sons of God. We're going to see now the Christmas message in October, and that is that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So let's, let's read beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteneth every man that comes into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, that he that cometh after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness we have received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So John, in his his gospel, wants so badly to convince us that Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus this itinerant rabbi who didn't have a home, didn't have a place to lay his head, was God Almighty. And that this, this, this man who did miracles and he was patient and loving, this man who at the end of his life was beaten by the Roman guards, was God himself. Melissa made a comment from her Bible study with the, with the teenagers today that, that Usa stabilized the ark as it was on a cart and trying to keep it from falling and slipping, and he was, he was killed instantly just for putting his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. But yet there were people that would dare bash Jesus' face in with their fists, and that, the, that to touch the true Ark wouldn't have caused them to be, to be, at that moment, incinerated because Jesus restrained him, because he came into, his wor- into this world, that he, it was his and his own received him not. So we saw, we saw that last, last week, by God's grace, there are some that receive him, 
and that those have been given authority. And interesting, I was, as I was writing out my notes today, I was like, oh, all of these start with a P. It sounded like a preacher thing to do. So I, I wrote, it didn't really matter. Whosoever, the best Christian t-shirt I ever saw was a Christian t-shirt that just had the word whosoever on it. I just thought, now there's a Christian t-shirt. Whosoever, whoever has eyes to see, whoever has an inclination in their heart that Jesus is God and wants to follow him and is willing to throw away the idols, God has done a miracle in that person's life. And it doesn't matter. His past doesn't matter. Your past doesn't matter. It does not matter how filthy you think you were. You're way worse than you thought you were. But it doesn't matter at all. Your past is irrelevant to God's grace. And it doesn't matter who your parents are. The Jews thought because we have Moses, we are right with God. And Jesus said, God can make these rocks into the sons of Abraham. And, and thank God I was one of the rocks that was turned into the son of Abraham. I just think that is amazing that God is willing to do that. And I wrote down preparation. It doesn't matter. The preparation, it doesn't matter to what degree you've studied in order to know who God is. God is able to break into your life. Upon the hearing of the gospel, a, a preacher is sent, a preacher who just is not preaching themselves, but preaching, them, preaching themselves at your service for God's sake, preaching the, what the scriptures say, the Holy Spirit is creating life in people. We just sang, I know not how. The Spirit is able to create faith in a person's heart. It happens, but I don't know any of that. All I know is that I trust God to be able to do it because it was his idea. It's not our idea. We're not trying to pull ourselves up like the Tower of Babel. This was God's idea to save men, and he's doing it through his son, through Jesus. And then I said, and it's regardless of presentability, you don't have to look good. You don't have to clean yourself up. I remember once I was in college and I had been witnessed to by someone in one of the Christian groups at college. And I remember telling God, if you'll just give me three weeks, I'll clean myself up and I'll make sure that I'm right. I was so clueless. I thought that I'm dirty. I can't even look at you. Remember, Adam hid. Adam hid behind the bushes because I can't go to God. I'm dirty. Jesus, Jesus told Peter, why don't you put the net on that side of the boat? And he raises up so many fish that it only sinks the boat. And immediately Peter says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a, I'm a dirty man. Immediately when you look upon the Lord Jesus, you recognize who you are. There's an instant acknowledgement of the glory that Jesus is shining. There's not any eye that did not see Jesus. It says the light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it and the darkness couldn't conquer it. So all people looked upon the Lord Jesus in his moral glory, but yet did not recognize that it was God. But they did recognize that they hated him. They recognized that we need to get rid of him as fast as we can. And they did as fast as they could. So you do not need to clean yourself up. God is able to attack you. He is able to completely trap you. He can catch you. And he does that by the Spirit of his, his Holy Spirit working through the simple message of the gospel according to his scripture that will live forever. The earth will not. The earth will melt with fervent heat, but his word will never melt. 
And this is amazing. So this morning, Jesus is manifested as the one who is completely like us in nature, but his moral character is nothing at all like us. He, he is, was born as a person. He becomes a man. He becomes what he never once was. He was always, Jesus Christ was always, but he was never a man until he became a man. He became what he was not. It is the biggest mystery, and most people would mock the idea that God became a man. Uh, But it was totally necessary, and it was God's idea. There was no other way to save our souls, no other way at all. There was one way and only one way, and it cost so much that no one would even imagine that God would pay the price. But God paid the price in Jesus Christ, and that is what the gospel of John is, is trying to say. So I want to go back into verse 13 just a bit and kind of wrap up some loose ends from last time. We saw that to all who received him, um, to them gave he authority or power to become children of God. Um, 13 is just too powerful. 13 says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When La Coretta opened in Somersville, Uh, I was uh, the youth pastor at at the Southern Baptist Church in Somersville, and I had such an absolute heart. And it was one of these things that I I knew it was God because there was an urgency. And that urgency was that these people who came to Somersville, none of them spoke English. At that time, the managers who had been there for years and years and years, uh, they didn't speak English. No, none of them spoke English. They all lived together, and they were living in our little town. And this was not a sophisticated place. This was a country place, and you had people that couldn't even go to the doctor or couldn't even do anything. Everything was by them they, themselves. And I asked the deacons, will you send me to language school for the summer? And I received a salary for the whole two or three months that I was there, and I went to Costa Rica, and I studied Spanish for the whole summer. Then when we, then I came back in the, the fall, I started a ministry to the Hispanics. So we had soccer. Melissa and I have been to 100,000 soccer games. I have put more soccer goals into my own goal. I'm the worst soccer player on earth, but the Hispanics love soccer, and so if you're going to have a ministry, you play soccer, we, we met in the gym, uh, starting at New Life and at other places, at 10 o'clock at night on Sundays, and we'd go till 2 o'clock in the morning playing soccer. And I had five guys to my house, and I made them spaghetti. And I, ha- and I gave them a Spanish Bible, and one of the boys opened his Bible at random and read this verse, Okay. He read verse 13. He opened his Bible, just opened it up, and he looked and he read this in Spanish, of course, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he said, what does this mean? I know I nearly burst into tears. First of all, that God would allow him to open at random to one of the strongest verses of God's sovereign salvation to men. Is I mean, he could have opened to the begets. I wouldn't even have known, like, okay, those are just names, Zebedee or whatever. I, I just thought, no, 
which are born not of man. When you were made a Christian, it was not because it was somebody's idea. It was God's idea. It said, not born of blood. It wasn't natural. It wasn't a natural birth. It wasn't a natural bloody birth like natural bloody births are. It had nothing to do with being physically born. You are a new creature. It is a miracle. If you belong to God, it's a miracle. A miracle of miracles. And it's not like you being born. Because it says, not of the will of the flesh. Not of the will of the flesh. You were born because decisions were made. I don't know how to say it more subtly. Decisions were made. And you are the product of those decisions. And you were made because someone willed it to happen. Now, it was God's doing, but God said in your real life, in your, in your born-again life, in your regenerate life, it had nothing to do with anybody wanting it to happen. Nobody said, oh, my sweet babies, I want them to be a Christian. I want them to know the Lord. And I, if you're anything like me, you've lost track into the millions of prayers. Oh, God, save my kids. Oh, God, let them see. Let them see their need of a Savior and do everything that's necessary so that they will see it, so that they're not surprised with it, so they're not like Lot's uh, son-in-laws who had never heard him speak of God at all, and then all of a sudden when, he, when the city is about to be destroyed, they acted like that he was out of his mind because suddenly he's talking about uh, spiritual things. No, you talk of spiritual things when you get up and when you sit down, when you... When you walk around so that that God is continuously before their eyes. But it's not up to me. It's not up to me. It's a miracle of life that God did. And it says, not the will of man. It's not even my own will. But I promise, if you want God, you can have him. If you want the Lord Jesus to be your Savior, if you want that, if you will it, If there's will in your heart of, I want that, and I know not how God did it, but when I want it, I can have it. You reach out your hand in faith, and God will give it to you, and he gets all glory for it. I I just think that is amazing. He gets all glory for it. It's, It's interesting that you would say, and I'm not embarrassed by having said that, if you want him. He has offered himself to you for the taking. It's all up to him. He gets all glory. I get no glory for having received the Lord Jesus. It's not, there's no kudos to me. There's no no merit at all to my having chosen to, to take Christ. Christ offered himself and gave me eyes to see. And if I see, I can have it. And there is requirement of me. I am to receive him. I am commanded to repent. Commanded. I'm commanded to repent. And to not believe and not repent is the sin that will damn you. It will be your damning sin. It is not your mouth. It is not your laziness. It is not your overeating that will damn you to hell. It is your lack of belief and lack of repentance when Jesus offered himself to you. But this says it's not of the will of man. It is God that does this. God creates life in people, and God receives it. Jesus told the Pharisees, you will not, you will not come to me. Now, you have to be careful with the word will. The word will means your choice, your will. It is my will. And we have, 
as English developed, the word will simply became future tense. I will do it. That means I'm willing to do it. I have will to do something. So he said, you will not come to me. And what that means is because you have no desire to come to me. You will not come to me that you would receive life. I would give you life. You will not come to me. You have no desire to come to me. So I just promise, if you have desire to come to Jesus, he offered himself, you may come to Jesus. You may come. You're you're commanded to come, and you will be received, never to be thrown away. He will give you the authority to become sons of God. It's, it's, It's truly amazing. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith, through his word, birthed in you by God. That, that is just remarkable. So now let's go to the Christmas verse. This is now verse 14. And the word, he re, remember, refers to Jesus here as the word, the communication of God, this eternal logos from all eternity, always God, became flesh. King James was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when it says the word was made flesh, we are talking about a mystery that cannot be explained. I, I mean, when I sat down with my pencil and my paper to say, what am I going to say? First of all, it's one of the most well-preached verses in the entire scripture. And I was at an absolute loss. What do I write? What do I say? How do I start thinking about this? It's too enormous. The mystery that God became a man. So, so the idea of the incarnation, it's called the incarnation. Car- carnation, like carnitas, just means flesh again. It means that God came into flesh. He became a man. That God, who never stopped being God, became a man. I can't put my mind around that. It's, it's, it's too big to be, you can't put it in my cup. My cup is too small to hold that concept. The idea that God who will stay God will now become what he never was. So the eternal person of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is always God, has in time, and that's important, in our time, not in eternity, but in time, because God doesn't dwell in time. God is in eternity beyond time. Time is a sequence of events that has a starting and a finishing. And God looks into time just like he looked onto the Tower of Babel. It is something that he is not in. It's not in his dimension to have chronology. But he steps into time and into space. God is a spirit that has no, there is no, nothing there. He fills the universe, Ephesians says. That there is nothing that does not contain him. And that, do you think that he, the whole world could not contain him and you're going to put him in a temple? That was to Solomon. God can't be in a temple. God can't, it's not like Zeus, that you can have a hundred foot statue of Zeus and it fits in a temple that can hold a hundred foot statue. Just make this, make the building big enough to hold the statue and you're fine. Well, you can't have a temple big enough to hold God. This is the house of the Lord, and the Lord is here when two simple Christians are putting their faith together. Do you think that this brick building from 1921 can hold the Lord God? Absolutely not. 
God is beyond all of it. But he stepped into time. He stepped into space. And he was born of the Virgin Mary. That a woman had a baby without having ever known a man. And it wasn't like a Greek myth where where Zeus comes in very promiscuously and has babies all over the place. It isn't like that at all. She was overshadowed overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and she became the bearer of the only begotten son. And there is a word in the King James that means nothing. It, it, is so, it is so unheard of that it's not used in any other context, in any other place, in all of human writing. It means one gene. That instead of having two genes, one from each parent, where you know your dad is tall and your mother's short and your dad has blonde hair and your mother has brown eyes, you end up looking like you do because it's a conglomeration of your genetics from your parents. Monogenes is the word for only begotten. means one gene. It, there's nothing else to say. He only received humanity through the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. David, uh, in the Romans, he was proved to be the son of David. So he was proved to be the Messiah by being the born, the son of David. That both Mary traced his lineage to David and Joseph, her husband, traced his lineage to David. And as such, Jesus, born in a barn, should have been the high priest, or should, sorry, should have been the crown prince of the country. That he had, he had the pedigree to be able to do it. But that was through his birth. But he was shown to be God by the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul said. God proved him to be God because he rose him from the dead. Now, we're going to see that it takes the entire book of John for that argument to be completely sealed. He is showing you again and again and again, this is God you're looking at. This is God speaking. This is God acting. And then at the very end, he's going to raise from the dead. God vindicated him and proved that he was who he said he was by his resurrection. So it's a paradox that I don't believe that we will understand in our lifetime and perhaps not even into eternity. I don't know that we will even conceptualize what it means for God to be fully man, complete man, and fully God at the same time. This is 1 John chapter 4. Now, John wrote letters at the end of the Bible that are his same personality. You could think that he wrote it in the gospel, but this was in one of his letters. In this was manifested the love of God towards us. That because God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live with him, live through him. So this proves God's love. That God sending his love, sending his son, proves his love. That there is something that God has chosen to prove his love. So the first thing I wrote down was the incarnation is firstly the primary expression of God's self-disclosure. He's showing himself. If We never knew anything about God. We would not know anything about God. If God intended to rescue people but never wrote it down and we had no way of knowing it, we would not know. There would be no way that I would know the secret intentions of God at all way except that God has decided to tell us. God has disclosed himself. He has revealed himself. He did it. He's the subject of the revelation and he is the revealer. He's the one who did it. And we're going to see that John is saying, Jesus Christ is the revealer. He's the one that opens up who God is. 
This is from Matthew uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 20. But while he thought on these things, this is Joseph, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thy, Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So Isaiah, as he was sitting at his desk, looking into the distant future, not understanding almost nothing, and the Holy Spirit moving in him, said that the, the virgin is going to have a baby, and you're going to call his name God with us. That God is not just going to be distant from us, but he's going to be with us. When God created this world, the Garden of Eden was a temple. And it was God's always plan that, that Adam and Eve would have children, and their children would have children, and their children would have children. Well, eventually you're going to run out of room. Eden's not going to be big enough. <clears throat> so if Eden is a temple to the worship of God... It was meant that the entire world would be filled with the sins of Adam and Eve and that God would be worshipped in one temple that's still not big enough for him. But, and, and if you think about, as you go back, what does the presence of God even look like? Where, where do we see it? And you see it in the tabernacle and you see it in the temple. That God actually dwelt in some way, some physical way, that you could see that God was there. He filled it such that it was a glory, and they didn't even understand what to say, so they just called it the glory, the Shekinah, that there was a Shekinah glory that filled the temple, so much so that when the temple was first inaugurated, the priests couldn't even go in to minister. It was too full of God's glory. You couldn't even, it was suffocating. No one could go in. You, couldn't, you were blinded by the light. You couldn't take it. It was like pressure on your chest. This is from Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That was God's purpose. That that tent that he was going to make them was so that he could dwell with them. It's God's intent for us to dwell with him. He intends to dwell with his people. When, we, when the new Jerusalem comes, it's Eden again. The trees that we see in, in the Garden of Eden are in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because God's plan A was that he would dwell with his people forever. And that's what will always happen. God will get his way. He's God. So they built the tent. And when they inaugurated the tent, this is from chapter 40 of Exodus, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we see the presence of God was too much to handle. It would be like being electrocuted all the time. You couldn't handle it. It's not, you couldn't stand it. It was riveting and delighting and too much. It was overwhelming. When they built the tent, the, the tabernacle, uh, David had built his palace and ached because I live in a beautiful building and the Lord is dwelling in a tent. And it was his intent to make a tabernacle, to make a permanent, a permanent temple. And he asks God, he asks the prophet to do it. And the prophet says, yes, go do what's in your heart. Later, we see that Solomon builds it. 
And this is in 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon has just prayed. Solomon has just begged God for doing what God had intended to do. And this is in chapter 8, verse 10. It came to pass when the priests were come to the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So we see that it was God's intention to be with us. He meant to be with us. And Isaiah said, the virgin's going to conceive and bring forth a child and you will call him Emmanuel. And the angel speaking into Joseph's dream said, you will call him Jesus because he will save his, his uh, people from their sins. And this was to be take place so that the prophet would be fulfilled. They should call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us is Jesus Christ. That to look upon Jesus Christ was to look upon God, your maker. That's a mystery that can't be fathomed. Zechariah says they will look upon him whom they pierced. When Jesus comes again, they're going to say, that was the one I thrust through with the sword. That's the one that I nailed to the tree. They're going to see the very one that they, that they did. Philip says something right at the end in the upper room, right before the, after the Passover or after the Lord's Supper. Philip says unto the Lord, this is John 14, show us the Father and it will suffice us up. Jesus said, have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how saith then, show us the Father? Jesus, throughout the entire book, now it's going to take us 14 chapters to get there, through the whole book has been showing God to them over and over and over. Every day, every minute of the day, you to see, to see God, that is to see Jesus. When Jesus acts, God is acting. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. And that's why there's an old tradition to actually make the letters of Christ red so that they pop out on the page. It's a very, very old. As soon as a printer was able to have two different types of inks with two different types of prints on the same page, they did it because it's that idea if Jesus is speaking, God is speaking. It's a matter of that you're to put your attention to this. So when I look and say that Jesus has said something to me, I don't take it lightly. This is God Almighty. Now, do I have eyes to see? I pray that I have eyes to see. Do I have ears to hear? I pray that I have ears to hear. I want to listen, and I want to watch, and I want to look, and I want to see what my maker says to me. This is, this is 1 Timothy chapter 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That means he showed up as a person justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. That is the mystery. That is what you're trying to explain to someone something that's bigger than your brain, that God became a man and that that, that is our only hope. When he died, he died as a man. When he died, he died as a blasphemer. And he died for me, the blasphemer, because I promise if I do not have a savior, I will be condemned on judgment day as a blasphemer. I lived as a blasphemer. My life blasphemed. My tongue blasphemed. My actions blasphemed. My motives blasphemed. God will not accept me. But Jesus the perfect, Jesus the man, Jesus God himself died in my place and will be accepted in my place. So my blasphemy has been crucified in that beautiful head. And he 
when love was crucified, love arose on the third day. So we see that in the Old Testament, the tabernacle represented God's presence. But in the New Testament, it's the person of the Lord Jesus. So Miranda read in Colossians in in chapter 2, In him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Jesus Christ, everything that is God dwelt bodily in Jesus Christ. Now, put eternity into into a six-foot man. I have no idea how, how tall he was. Into a man, into that person. All of God was in all of Jesus, and Jesus was perfectly man. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't God descending down on a cloud. This was a person who was fully person. He got tired. He got exhausted. He bled. He hurt. When he was beaten, he was beaten the same as you would be beaten. When he was killed, he was killed the way you would be killed. But it's not his crucifixion that is so atrocious. It's the fact that God looked away. He rejected Jesus on the cross. That was the, that was the blood that dripped out of Jesus' forehead, knowing that he would be rejected by God. You will never be rejected by God if you have him as Savior. You will never. You'll never know it. It'll never come to you. You are safe in him. It's a cleft in a rock, and you are safe in him. And when God's glory passes by, you will not be overwhelmed by God's glory. He will not destroy you because Jesus was destroyed. The Godhead was fully in the Lord Jesus. Second thing I wrote down is that John, starting in, um, in verse uh, 14, talks about his own uh, testimony, his own witness. What does he see? Christ has witnesses to his incarnation. I wrote down beside the sheep and cows, which I just thought was funny, that the Lord of glory was born in a barn and the first eyes to look upon him were sheep and cows. There's nothing low. You can't get any lower than that. To look upon the baby and just have a cow chewing his cud, not even knowing that that was the maker of heaven and earth sitting there, that is the same as Jesus coming to us. Don't think that that sheep has sightless eyes to not know or recognize what he has. I have sightless eyes. I don't recognize what I have. I don't recognize that Jesus was here. I don't recognize that he's in this room. I don't recognize that the Lord of glory is calling me to repentance. I'm doofus in every way. I can go through my day without one thought of God if God's spirit does not call me to repentance continually. I'm a fallen man. And these, these sightless eyes, the sheep and cows, not even realizing that the baby... First of all, why is there a baby in the barn? And who is this baby? Well, very, very few in this world will ever recognize that. And so he, John is adding his witness. So I, I had to put... This is from 1 John chapter 1. Remember, John is writing all of the time. This is 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have touched uh, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, we've seen it, and bear witness and show you that eternal life which was with the Father and manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard declare we to you that we may have fellowship with us, truly our fellowships with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. John just said, I just have to tell you what I saw. I want to tell you what I saw. I want to tell you what I experienced. And this is is what we see in this verse. So this is, you know, back to 
Back to verse 14. Verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. I have, we have to tell you, I saw it. I saw his glory. And it's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. See, there's evidence inside that glory. The glory that Jesus showed is not a glory like a king would have glory. It's not a glory like someone that is good at sports or someone who is smart or someone who can, can flip a rock 15 times on the lake and everybody brags on him. This is the glory that only God would have. And I saw it over and over again, and I know what I'm talking about. It's the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And it says, full of grace and truth. Jesus has grace. Jesus has truth. Now, this is, this is a straight quote from an Old Testament psalm. This is Psalm 38, 138. This is David. I, pra- I praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praise to thee. I will worship you towards thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. So loving kindness is God's love. And when that love comes to me, it's called grace. When God's love, which is simply his intent towards me, is actually given to me, you can't love me. I mean, we use the word love, but that love is talking about yourself. I love you is something talking about me. But when it's to you, the only thing I can do is show you my love. And when God shows his love to you, that's called grace. He's treating you in a way that you are higher than you are. He's treating you the way he sees you rather than that you see yourself. He sees you as as a son or daughter. He sees you as one that will inherit his throne with him. That's grace. And John says everything Jesus ever did was loving. He never did anything that I didn't feel his love. And he didn't do anything that didn't express his truth. Now, truth scares me. Truth scares me because truth means I know what you did. I know what you're guilty of. That's truth. And Jesus never did anything except the truth. But he did it in love. That means I accept you and I accept you, you. I'm not accepting you that you dress yourself up first, that you present yourself to be some way. I'm I'm accepting you the way you are with warts and all. And I accept you because I know that I'm going to die for you. God's love is expressed in grace. And everything Jesus did was grace and truth. He doesn't cover up. He doesn't cover up. He He does not contribute to you spending your life to be better than you are. He will never do it. He will never be complicit in your lie. He opens up. He reveals. The light reveals. Sinners will always hide. Because they know that their actions are guilty. A sinner has put all of their merit on Jesus Christ. Jesus is holding it. And I can be who I am. And it's, it's terrifying. It's a terrifying way to act. 15, when he gets to 15, he mentions John again. And the reason why John is in the middle of this passage, it feels almost like he's stuck in, is that he's the prophet. This is the Old Testament. The end of the Old Testament prophets is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist in 15 says, He bear witness of him crying, saying, This is of whom I spake. He that comes after me is preferred before me because he was before me. So John has witness of himself. John has the, uh, John the apostle. John the Baptist as a prophet is bearing witness of God. That Jesus is that Christ. And any of us who have received him, who have been given the power to become the sons of God, we have received 
because that's what it says. It says, we have, this is back to 14, we've beheld his glory, the glory of the only gotten full of grace and truth. And then 15, John bare witness of him crying, this was he of whom I spake. He that comes after me is preferred before because he was before me. And 16, and of the fullness we have received grace for grace. That I know that everything that Jesus is, is coming to me. It's a personal testimony. My personal testimony is not I'm good. Like me because I'm good. Respect me because I'm good. My personal testimony is that Jesus is good and he has loved me. That I'm a receiver of his love. That's what you tell your friends. That's what you tell your lost family. That's what you tell yourself. Jesus loves me, even me. And when that happens, we have received this fullness. So God says, I will, I will never leave nor forsake you. I always thought that was in the Gospels, that Jesus said that. No. God says that to Moses. I'll never leave and I'll never forsake you. I'll never throw you away. But Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That there'll never be a time that God is not with you to have Jesus as your Savior. So it's my prayer that as we as we settle our mind on this, that we rejo- rejoice with great rejoicing and that we re- realize that God has become flesh for us.